0: Hi, I'm Hattie Willis and welcome to Venture Out, the podcast where we geek out on exciting new business models and hear the stories of the incredible founders making them happen. So welcome to this new series interviewing founders who I think are just super cool working on interesting business models. My name is Hattie Willis and I'm very excited to have Jens here with me today. So Jens and I have known each other a long time, but I'm gonna let him introduce himself and his story because I think it's a really interesting one to hear from his side. So, Jens, where does your story begin? And then tell us about your wonderful startup macca.
1: Hi, Hattie, thank you so much for having me. So, where we met was at Startup Bootcamp, a startup accelerator network here in Europe. And I started out in Berlin in a program focused more on transportation and energy. Helping out in the scouting and hands-on with the with the entrepreneurs, and apparently it worked out well for me. And I then moved to London for the same company, but doing a different program focused on insurance.
0: And obviously, you worked in InsurTech as our COO, our leader, and you were overseeing the program that was training loads of startups. But then that wasn't the last time that you worked with Startup Bootcamp in Shortech because you then left. <laughs> and what did you do after you left? <laughs>
1: Yes, one of the founders who came to us in, in the, um, in the insuretech program was interested in joining it and we kept talking a little bit and like for me it was interesting to see after two years of scouting companies again for what moves the industry, what have something that fundamentally changes the relationship between the user mm. and, the, and the insurer and found that with my co-founder Toby and our third Musketeer, Ben. And we started something called back then InsureThing, which is now called LACA
0: and then you came back on the startup bootcamp Camp short tech program this time as a startup.
1: Yeah, it was a funny coincidence. It was pitched to me, what would you think if we were to join the program you are currently a part of as running it. And yeah. I was like <laughs> funny moment. But it was great. It was it was it was great from both sides. I think it it really gives you like a unique perspective of like being on the other end as well. Um, the yeah. people I have, I have, I've whipped into workshops and told you've got to do this right now. This, this is absolutely a must. And then being on the other end and seeing, interesting.
0: Did you get different things out of it to what? Because I mean, you must have had such a sense. You literally knew the curriculum. You knew who the corporate partners were. But did you get different things that you were expecting out of it, or was it a lot of what you knew already?
1: I think the benefit was that a lot, a lot of the sessions are fairly unique in like every single mm. cohort, based on like what kind of companies you have in. And um, so Bootcamp always had probably a few more B2B companies because there's the big yeah. corporate backing. And we were strictly B2C. So it's, it's yeah. I think like you get then like very different things and like you try to get very different things out of it. You talk to mentors, you probably haven't talked with that much because you talked about very different stuff, right? Like, have you already found another company to work with? And suddenly yeah. now it's cool. So how do we acquire customers?
0: <laughs> no, definitely. And so I actually remember being, I wasn't running it, but I was in your business model canvas session where you went through the canvas for the new business with Jordan. For those of you who haven't met Jordan Schliff, he is uh, the hardest business model canvas reviewer I've ever met. He never likes a canvas unless he's come up with it himself. And I remember him coming out going, this is super smart. I'm excited (laughs) about this one. So that was quite an accolade. So tell us a bit more about the business model behind Lacquer because it is really different.
1: So we are in insurance and effectively, the, the business model of insurance is that you charge premiums upfront and you try to price that accurately with the customer. So you, so you charge them every month or, or, or every year, just for a portion of the risk they have. And then you price something in, which is like your margin. You hope that, that that then works out for you in the end. That puts you in this slightly awkward position that when a customer comes to the point of claiming that you actually give them money, which reduces your revenue. And that's something from the outset where my co-founder, Toby, who, who came initially up, up with the idea, said, well, how can we fix that, right? It's a very simple mathematical formula is that every time I do the service I'm paid for, I'm basically losing money. How can we make money when we when we help our members? So the change of our business model is very simple. It's every time we settle a claim, we make money. So we bring a community of people together. We call it now a collective. We ensure this collective together. And if there's a claim, we split the cost fairly. At the end of the month, and charge a fee on top. So that's a transparent twenty-five percent on top of claims, and split by everyone. And there's obviously like the question: Well, what if everyone claims? Um, suddenly everything shoots up. We we lock in a maximum price, and there we use probably somewhat traditional tools, which are, mm. which are known from from insurance. But it's really if if everyone behaves better, everyone saves and there's also like a few interesting moments which you have in terms of like capital requirements how, like how do you do this because obviously it's, it's not traditional insurance anymore right yeah it's it's uh, it's something different
0: it's one of those things where you talk quite a lot about disruption but this genuinely disrupts the business model and just goes this is rubbish for customers and it's rubbish for the business one of the things i think is really interesting with you guys is because to come up with that collective and build that New behavior about shared responsibility. You were very specific and targeted in who you served, weren't you? It was a very niche customer segment.
1: Yeah. So we started out with the cyclist as a customer, insuring bikes, and it's, it's one of those things where you look at it, they're like, oh, that's a niche, that's tiny, right? If you look at it, it's probably bigger than runners. um yeah. It's it's like I mean, leaving today's world aside, right? Because that's <laughs> yeah. that's that's just insane. It was always. A niche which was big enough to actually scale this into a billion dollar company just with Europe. It's that big. And that's just the enthusiast market. And there's people who like cycle more than three times a week and do it not for commuting, but actually for leisure. So I think that's the interesting bit. But like within that, you fairly quickly, see, you got to find your first champions. What are your actual early adopters? And it's probably took us 2018 to figure that properly out. Then basically grew by 10 times in the following year. Having figured it out and now it's fast, even like, okay, how can we open this up again by 10 times and yeah. it's this constant challenge. Where do you start? Do you have a, a mass market product and try to yeah. get traction on it or are you starting with a niche and you really understand that and grow within it, but how do you then open up the funnel? And we chose the latter challenge.
0: Which I guess also makes sense to take because you're looking at an industry that, yeah, it's a regulated industry. It's very risk averse. Being able to prove it with a limited risk pool, because you can really Mm. know the user. And I mean, have you found that because it's such a specific elite cyclists almost, because they're they're such hardcore fans, it's a lot easier to tailor levers that you pull to try and stop overclaiming all at once so that you don't pay that excess?
1: I think that's where we also did it completely right from the beginning, is that you understand the customers so well, because you focus so heavily on them. That you can absolutely nail the claims process a lot of other companies within the insurtech space said from the beginning i don't want to touch that claims process it's going to be a third party administrator who's handling that so i can focus on an acquisition and we obviously had that distraction of doing customer service and doing claims in-house while we had to manage acquisition effectively and that distracts you more but all the learnings you get from customer development from interviews you you put straight into your claims process and yeah. then now we walk out of this and we see people in the industry pulling their claims in-house because of that.
0: <laughs> I mean, I'm an avid follower of all your social media, but I've seen all of the claims feedback and it's an insane. I mean, I've never really thought people could love insurance. And then you see what people write about lacquer. How, how big a part has that been of, of being able to tailor really to their needs and make what is a rubbish process? If you lost your bike, you can't back, back on the road. That mm. seems to be so core cool to what you do, is, is making that as pain-free as possible.
1: It, it is 100%. It's, and, it, and it actually, it, it's, it starts with the policy wording. Because the way we make money when we settle claims, we look at the policy wording, cool. So how can we accept every claim that's just not fraudulent? Because yeah. that's how we think about it. If there is a risk that, that people want to pay, for, then why don't we just cover it? As long as we stay consistent and fair to everyone in the community, yeah. that's how we drive that. It's just like a different way of, of like thinking of the policy where you're not, not pulling things in so we can pull the price down so we look more attractive on the price comparison website but it's how can we just make it work for people and their claims behavior yeah. will basically dictate price
0: i mean has it helped you that this is not yet a market that as far as i'm aware you can't go on and, and compare this it's not yet commoditized in the same way that contents insurance is
1: yeah i think it's probably coming right now and it's like i don't want to say it's generally a bad move towards price comparison website. It has to be a really simple products where, where the price can be one of the deciding factors of it. Or, yeah. Or, or for instance, like the the biggest um, example for me is, for instance, travel insurance, right? If you try yeah. to buy travel insurance on a price comparison website, you, you get shown a price and three values, but what you buy is probably some like 25 covers layered on top of each other, yeah. from using your passport to having medical, and you have no idea what you're buying at that point. And that's, I think, the the tricky thing the moment you can really condense a product onto a few metrics it becomes really interesting and price comparison webs can be a way of of basically comparing product fairly for customers
0: i mean what's interesting about lacquer because you have this price cap it is quite fair but obviously price is not the main competition right it's that breadth of cover and the the experience.
1: I mean, it's it's not always about pricing; it's about value, right? Um, and if people see value in what they're buying, then that's the right thing. Fast for for probably like value is is a lot communicated about how we speak to our customers, and they they get a monthly bill, they get an overview of how we spend the money, on like what kind of brands, like bikes. Um, we include what was the nicest spike we have replaced this month. It becomes more of a feeling of, you know, we are kind of together in this, right? Miss with one of us, mess with all of us. That's kind a little bit like the mantra of how we try to play that. It, I think it's it's value above what you provide in the claims experience that you're part of something.
0: I love that. So what would you say are the core competencies for this kind of business model? Because you're covering, as you said, like you've taken claims in-house, you then do a huge amount of content marketing, creating incredible content that that brings this community together outside when they actually have to claim as well. So what are some of the the things that you would say really set you apart?
1: It's obviously scalable distribution channels has to be the number one thing for every single business. It is about designing products that really beat everyone else in the market. All like product design, customer development aspect is is super key. and, And a number of these claims for me. I don't think it's something outsourceable at all.
0: And when you say customer development, I think a lot of people have heard the term, they know roughly what it means, just the idea of going and talking to customers and learning what they need. But a lot of people, I think, think it stops when you've got your new product. Is that an approach that you guys take or how do you view customer development?
1: There's a, I guess like probably a customer involvement is lived within the product function by us. every new policy iteration, every new user flow that's rolled out it has seen some customer interaction before it's then landing with the wider audience we have a Facebook group where we pitch ideas into collect uh, people for like customer interviews it's, it's this process of like whatever you build you integrate your your members your users into that process and try to stop things from from getting too far in that product pipeline and just kill them off early enough. That's, that's probably the biggest thing, right? What do we not have to do effectively?
0: <laughs> I totally agree. And I think what's, what's really interesting in that as well is because you've got that community who so want to be a part of what you're doing. And insurers would love, you know, they have focus groups, they pay for focus groups, but to have like a collective who actually genuinely see themselves as part of that product development, that's, that's really different. So when it comes to content marketing, you guys do a lot one of the coolest things i thought was about a year ago strada came out and and their data was being hacked and it was being used to see where people were stealing bikes yeah and you you guys saw this it was like big in the industry and you guys saw it and you you came up with something super cool to get your users engaged
1: it was interesting because it started off actually by um that you were able to see military bases on Strava because Soldiers were, were running around the outer skirts of, of bases and suddenly like you could see, oh, there must be a military base in the middle of the desert, which you could find on Strava, right? And it's, it's obviously that is, that's true for everything, right? Every, everything you lock on Strava, you, you see the start and the end point. And based on if you cycle somewhere in the morning and you come back in the evening, you can pretty quickly see, oh, that's probably a commute. So, so the bike is probably the whole day at work and it's at home in the evening. So when this whole thing came out, we, we basically went in, like you can sign in with Strava onto, onto like one of our pages. And we show you where these starting endpoints are on the map. And if they're pretty close to, to your home, it probably means that anyone who does something which probably takes two days, three days of death work, basically exposes everyone's rights, which are shared publicly. So that was, that was quite an insightful. Like, it actually also made it through Reddit and like a few other forums. And then of course, with the guide, Um, how how do you fix it? Because you can't fix it in Strava. It's just like that it wasn't on by default.
0: I love this because there's a great book called Traction by Gabriel Eisenberg, I think. And he talks about this, about seizing these micro opportunities where there's something in the news and being able to move really fast (laughs) to act on it. And I I love that you guys are doing that. So uh, do you have a big team on content marketing? Is it just very agile? How does that piece work?
1: Yeah. so it's it's um it's actually interesting this is it's actually two streams i think one is probably growth and product uh, and one is probably uh content marketing and, and, and probably the opportunity we, we had back then is probably more something I would, I would call into like product-led growth which is probably more like you, you build a product people can can use you know it's like a quiz it's like a calculator it's like something people can actually engage with yeah. but that actually adds value and content is probably more something like people can consume and transform themselves and learn from. It's like a different focus of those two and I think probably on content actually we have one person writing one <laughs> of our content. He's amazing he's a great writer. Um, if you probably go to our blog you you will you realize it's all the same name. and the product team is probably more something where we split between one of our growth directors, between myself, our VP marketing and then and then our engineering team which is pulled in on a case-by-case basis and it's, it's probably interesting. We have a bunch of these things in, in the pipeline where we just want to build these micro products, which are really helpful to any cyclist, mm. not just our customers and really can, can add value to the wider ecosystem. But of course, also, it's also it's an amazing acquisition opportunity, right? Because if you're I constantly in like a cyclist space, then hopefully the brand sticks.
0: And how important is brand? Because obviously you've rebranded, you were saying, and so your brand is, is pretty cool visually, I would say. We'll come in a minute to how you're using your brand visually. But yeah, how important is brand to you guys?
1: So I think we, we did two rebrands in, in our lifetime. And the first one was from something called Insure Thing to Laka, And yeah. with that, also like the color change, a dark green and black and white to, to something super bright and, and, and pink. And I think that was probably the first did, pun saying, yes, we look different. This is amazing. This is not like insurance. And I think that was a really important one when we just like realized like two years down the line we just got to refine it a little bit more. It just got to look more on point because our customers yeah. are people who wash their bike every time after their cycle. You look at these rusty chain rings, that's typically not our customer. There's elements where we have to just look more refined, look a little bit more slick. And that's probably where we then worked with with an amazing company where we then just like came up with, with the new lucker, which looks more refined and is also more probably driving the whole thinking behind the collective cover.
0: And obviously there is an exciting recent, collaboration you've done with another brand which is genuinely one of the coolest things i think i've seen for an insurance company so can you tell us about that
1: i mean we we know rafa for like a long uh for like quite a while um some of their former team members are actually with us that chairman nick evans is actually one of our asian investors so we Mm -hmm. always had amazing ties with them but we recently said like you know what with the new rebrand uh we really need kit for our team like we need the right cycling clothing from the cycling bib shorts to the jerseys a cap and socks and we need the whole lot and everyone who who sees on the road it's like okay this is team lacquer. we then realized in that process that actually people said oh you know what i think i would pay for that that, yeah. that looks pretty cool and basically it was just like customers initially like like saying hey this this looks really cool like i would pay money for that and so we did we we opened like a pre-sale up for for like 2 weeks uh people could could actually purchase it we had a really good traction, so like uh, a lower five five digits amount uh, was was purchased um, by our members. So like we've got a nice lot of, of people now soon riding out in in, in lacquer slash rafa kit. I love uh, it. It's pretty exciting.
0: And you, you price it. I love as well. Just like the detail, you can tell it's been so thought through. So it's like priced that for every purchase because it's not cheap cycling kit that you would yeah. get a discount of credits on your lacquer insurance. So it's also tied in. I mean, I won't name an insurer, but I'm certainly not going to be walking around with a t shirt with my contents insurer's name on it. Even if you're not a cyclist, go and look at Lackers Instagram, their LinkedIn, and look at the content that these guys are creating. Because I genuinely think it's like, of all the startups, when I used to teach, I used to give you guys an example of content marketing that just shows you're still doing customer development, you know your customer. I mean, the fact that you know that they clean their bike after every time they ride. You know, this is the level of detail that lets you create that lock-in and engagement.
1: I think I can probably say that we are solidly above the retention of like 85%. I think the interesting thing is also how much option we give people on like like on the way. Uh, effectively, yeah. something we rolled out recently is basically daily pricing. And you can effectively like dip in and out on a daily basis. And we still have better retention than someone who forces an annual contract on you. While having that flexibility, I think it's something really, really important for us that that we can still achieve industry-leading benchmarks. For us, it is about, you know, most of our customers have their two and a half bikes uh, insured on average, and they then potentially add bikes on and off based on if they go on holidays, if they travel, Mm -hmm. if they have a friend's bike, and that just gives them the full flexibility. But Mm -hmm. they could, of course, at any point just leave, at any point just join. It just gives them the maximum flexibility. And there's just no reason not to do it, right? Other than, oh, maybe I just lock them in and they forget.
0: Yeah, yeah, Uh, exactly. When you see the the business model that still relies on year-long contracts, you know that they have a problem where they need you to forget.
1: (laughs) Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, it's something interesting. But like we even say, you know, annual contracts, we... We are due to launch in the Netherlands pretty soon. And you're talking, they're actually about three to five year long contracts and you and you have it focused on your bike. So if that bike gets stolen, that contract ends, but you already paid for five years in advance. So it's, no. it's like new markets also have their own challenges, right? It's that interesting to like, basically roll the, this kind of new product out across many wow. geographies and fix very unique problems for people.
0: What's next to you guys? What are you working on now? What's coming up?
1: The big thing for us is that, I mean, in these times where like people really look for bikes and their weight, gain more freedom, get around town while staying safe, it's, it's fast really like, how do we bring this to not just the enthusiasts, but how do we bring yeah. this to everyone? How do we bring you on your 500 pound pinnacle equally across the city as the 5,000 pounds Pinarello rider? And I think there's obviously, there's some really cool products like in, in development, which will help cyclists uniquely in like a city environment. And Obviously, there are also like new modes of transportation, just like scooters and stuff like that, where mm. there are completely new challenges. Like, how do you price this? Um, how do you not just insure the scooter? Because that's probably not super interesting. But how do you insure yourself? And yeah. we did a first step where we, where, where we launched like a recovery focused product just for you as a cyclist, where you basically, we don't just give you cash after you broke your leg. There's actually more around the, the element of like, okay, let's let's pay for that private medical bills if you need it. Yeah. For like, let's say physiotherapy, maybe if you knocked a tooth out, things like that, which, which isn't under, under DHS. And then just like let you recover in the best way possible. And we assembled people like Wattbike, who is like the best training bike. We brought yeah. coaches in, which were like former Olympians. It's all of this team, which is almost like there to help you recover as an athlete. And bring this kind of almost like super R&D type level recovery down to like the city dweller and how can we it. make them if they if they break their leg how can we get them still to work right how can we still yeah. make sure that they that they can cook at home care for their family do their chores clean the house whatever it takes it's not just about throwing cash at them settling the claim but it's about how can we make their life recovering so much more better
0: i mean amazing i'm i'm a future customer because as you mentioned although i didn't pay full price i did find mine secondhand and i had a nightmare actually when <laughs> i bought my bike because not only is the processor trying to buy a bike stressful in COVID, I think I spent two hours trying to check with my contents insurer if I could add the bike. And then I had two just epiphany moments of where wow, insurance is really broken. Because uh, my bike is currently too cheap for lacquer. But, um, but one was they said, okay, that'll be £20 to add it on. And we have to tell you £19 of that is admin fee and one pound is the cover. I literally said, you've got to be joking me. And she said, no, I know it's really silly. So you think there's such worlds apart between what you're offering, which genuinely feels like a community that really cares about your recovery, and someone who's going to charge me 19 quid because I called them to add to my existing cover. I mean, there's so many pains still to be solved. I think it's a really interesting space. Thank God you're bringing it mass market. Hurry up, Jens. We'll I, do our I, best. Uh, thank you so much. I think those are the main questions, but obviously... If anyone has more, I'm sure we can ask Jens at a future time. But thank you so much. It's been amazing. I genuinely think Lacquer has really, really flipped insurance on its head. And the detail that comes out of customer development, really knowing your customer for me is just what's driven the model. And if you dig into it, it just shows so clearly that you know them better than any other insurer. So I love it. Thank you so much, Jens. And uh, good luck with Netherlands.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed this week's episode, please make sure to check back with us next week. And I'll be interviewing Matt Meeker, founder of Meetup and Bark.